the image of this ghostly woman walking through and three alcoholics dedicated to drinking stopping their drink to listen to the ravings of her. Welcome back to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning your playing devices, MP3 playing devices, back into this show. We're very excited to be back. We uh, took something like a break last week, or at least you did. I was uh, involved in the episode we had with a guest, Dr. Dennis Brewer from the Mathematics Department of the University of Arkansas, joined us to talk about the wonderful play Proof. That was a really exciting, really fun conversation. He brought really just a lot of cool info and insight into the world of mathematics culture that I just found really fascinating in relationship with the play. Yeah, if you all haven't uh, had a chance to go over and listen to that yet, we love having guests on this show, and they bring such unique, interesting perspectives to the plays that we read. So I would definitely recommend going back and checking out that episode as well. Absolutely. But it is a new week, and so we are on to a new script. We are leaving proof behind and coming to another one of those mainstay plays. Proof has a lot of life in the American theater world, and this play does too and has for a very, very long time. It comes from the pen of someone who many people consider to be one of America's greatest dramatists, Mr. Eugene O'Neill's play, Long Day's Journey into Night. Yeah, this is the second play that we've done by O'Neill, I believe, and uh, we are excited to get to jump into it. The last one we did was kind of the exception to the rule of his play. If uh, you all remember, we did All Wilderness a couple seasons back, and uh, that one's kind of a, a, a more fun play than a lot of his plays are. This one kind of gets into some of his uh, some of his uh, deeper themes that he likes to grapple with. Hey, yeah, deeper is one word. Darker <laughs> might be another word. I think All Wilderness is plenty deep, although I might be in the minority about that, but it is not plenty dark. As That's true. The, the difference in perspective between All Wilderness and Long Day's Journey into Night is vast. It is just vast. <laughs> yep. Well, before we jump into some of the foreboding pieces of this play, I do want to take just a second and thank everyone who is over on patreon.com slash podcast for supporting this show. Uh, the, you all know that this show, while a labor of love for us, is not free. We uh, retain some fees and uh, script costs for this show. So if you're looking for a way to get involved in the show and be a part of being sure that it has some longevity, that we get to keep having these conversations about theater's best scripts, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. We have a number of great tiers over there, patron-only posts. You get producer credit at a certain tier of uh, patronage. So if you have a second, if you're looking for a way to support the show, Head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, and we will see you over there. But for now, back to the script. Back to the script. Long Day's Journey in Tonight, written by O'Neill in the early 40s, but not published until 1956, which, if you already know the play, you already know this tidbit, so I'm not sure exactly who this tidbit is for, but it was several years after Eugene O'Neill's death. 
Those of you who love uh, Eugene O'Neill's work know that this was published posthumously, and he did win the Pulitzer Prize for it after his death as well in 1957. It first premiered in Sweden. The Swedes have long loved Mr. Eugene O'Neill, and <laughs> really, at the time of his publishing, even more than the Americans did, although we think of O'Neill as just this kind of uniquely, definingly American artist, uh, a lot of his work was really, really well-received over in Sweden. It then debuted on Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theater in November of 1956. Since then, the life, the, the life of the play is just carried on and on and on actors the world over have taken their play you know their particular takes on these characters this is one of those shows too where young actors grow into playing the older characters later on in their life um so you'll see a lot of these young men who played the jamies and the edmonds uh grow into wanting to play the james to uh, you know as adult men so kevin conway kevin spacey were in this play as young people of course Lawrence olivier uh there was a recently a production at the bristol old vic with Jeremy Irons. And then we know that there was a 1962 famous film. Probably a lot of you have seen it, uh, starring Katherine Hepburn. Jason Roberts Jr. played Jamie. And then just so many more. This is another one of those plays where I just couldn't possibly name all of the productions that surround it because the script has so much life in the American theater world and the world over. And it's like a challenge. It's a challenge on the level of... Uh uh, maybe on the level of Shakespeare to the to the amount of uh, lines that you have to say <laughs> in the play and the emotional depth with which you are willing to go in this play. So it becomes a, a you know almost a goal for a lot of actors as they're as they're approaching That's it. That's right. So it's won several Tony Awards, both the original 1957 production, then it was nominated for quite a bit on a Broadway revival in 1986. There was a 2003 Broadway revival that won several Tony Awards, including Best Revival, Best Leading Actor, Best Leading Actress. Uh, there was a 2015 Broadway revival where Jessica Lange won for her performance as Mary and several of the other nominees, uh, including Michael Shannon as Jamie. They were up for the award. They did not ultimately win, but they were nominated. And, you know, again and again, uh, Drama Desk Awards, Outer Critics Circle Awards, they are just all over the the popularity and the strong, strong actors and performances that this play has produced. And it's a very strong academic piece as well. This play, uh, if, if, if you do a uh, class on Eugene O'Neill or on classic American theater, certainly this play will come up as a way of engaging with the playwright uh, Eugene O'Neill himself, because a lot of this, this play uh, is indicative of his life. <laughs> and uh, and I think he wrote it almost as an autobiographical piece. So so on on many fields, this play has longevity and continues to be engaged with and grappled with, as we are going to do today. Before we start into it, though, I do want to synopsize the script just a little bit for you. Um, it is a fairly uh, straightforward script. Four acts. It's about a family uh, that is in. Oh, what's what's the region that they're in, Jacob? I don't know that I have that just off the top of yeah, my head. Yeah, it would have been in somewhere... Connecticut, off the Cape. Yeah, or if, if New that's England not the right area. New England state, then it's in one of the other New England states. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So New England, uh, this this family is at kind of a summer home, and uh, the family consists of James Tyrone, Mary Tyrone, 
James or Jamie, we'll refer to him as Jamie for probably this whole conversation, Tyrone, Edmund Tyrone, and Kathleen, who is their second girl or the uh, the maid of the house or the, yeah. Um, and we'll, so just so you know, just so we have the, the terms clear, we'll call uh, the father, James Tyrone, Tyrone throughout the play, the mother, Mary, the eldest son is Jamie, the younger son is Edmund. So this family of four is uh, at their summer home. Everyone is together, and we basically get to live with them for the for the day as they all grapple with their past and their pre- present and their for, future. For, as you um, might say, a long day's journey in tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, what what comes out during this long day is a lot of stuff. Edward is home uh, because he is sick. He has been uh, traveling uh, around the world as a sailor, trying to kind of make his way. We find out a lot of it has to do with trying to prove himself. Um, but he's been out in the world, but he has gotten terribly sick. And he comes home with what Mary terms as a summer cough or a summer cold. And uh, he spends much of the first scene kind of hacking his lungs out a little bit. And everyone's very plainly worried about him. The other thing that is starting to happen is Mary Mary is starting to return to some habits that she had before. Um, we, we learn throughout the script that Mary has uh, an addiction to morphine and morphine-related drugs to deal with pain. Um, this pain was... Uh, in a wide category of pain that a doctor recommended to her. And she has since become thoroughly addicted to morphine. And so throughout the day we see, uh, that she, well, well, prior to this, she had gone to rehabilitation and, uh, and had come back not addicted is what we believe to it for a time. And so the family is kind of relaxed a little bit, but during the course of the day, she again returns to that addiction. Uh, we also learn that there's tons of stuff in in their history that has to do with this. We learn that uh, uh, Tyrone and James, well, pretty much just all the guys are just heavy alcoholics, and uh, and and they use this this uh, this uh, dependence on whiskey in the same way that Mary ends up using morphine to kind of dull the, the the problems that are around them. And as they dull these problems, everyone begins to rehash their past. And these specifics we'll get into, but that's the big scope of it. Over the course of the day, they uh, everyone just progressively takes more chemical substances, and we uh, learn more and more about the way that this this family interacts with each other, both in the past, but also now around probably the 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 inciting incident of this play that makes this happen, though, is to keep in the back of your mind, is they're talking around Edmund being sick. Edmund being sick with something uh, that turns out to be more than a cough. It turns out to be what they call consumption or what we we would call tuberculosis. So it's a sickness in the lungs that at that time, it was right on the cusp of tuberculosis being treatable. So the uh, the family thinks that he could die. Some of them think that. Others are focused on getting him into treatment. That's the crux around which this... this, this family argument that happens over the course of a day uh, occurs. So that's, you know, the scope of the story, as you said, Jackson. I want to read you just a brief bit of Eugene O'Neill's biography from the back of my script, just so you can hear. You said that, you know, there's some autobiographical stuff in this play, and this is some of the stuff. 
Eugene O'Neill, uh, born 1888 uh, to 1953. So this play is set in 1912. And this would have been, you know, if this play were about Eugene O'Neill as a young man, which everybody agrees that it is, you know, he would have been 24-ish around the time of this play, which is just a little bit shy of the age of the two young sons in the play. So Eugene O'Neill was born in New York City, son of James O'Neill, James, the name of the father, a popular actor, the profession of the father in the play, and Mary Ellen Quinlan, the name of the mother in the play. During his childhood years, he lived mainly in hotels with his family, a common complaint by all the family about their life living with James the father as an actor. Following the tour of his father's company, the only permanent home the young O'Neill knew was a summer cottage in Connecticut which later became the setting for Long Day's Journey into Night. As an adolescent, he was uh, attended all these preparatory schools and then college where he was expelled, just like the Edmund character in the play. During the next five years, he worked as a gold prospector, a sailor, an actor, <laughs> and a reporter. So very autobiographical. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> to the point where he named the mother and father the names of his mother and father. If I were writing an autobiographical play, I mean, I would not call the mother and father nope. characters Scott and Kathy. <laughs> nope, definitely not. He does do a little bit of kind of interesting uh, obfuscation in this play, just almost like in a half-hearted attempt to throw some doubt into the equation. Uh, the, the, we find out that they had another brother who died quite young before uh, Edmund was born, and that brother's name was Eugene. Yeah. Um, Good try. <laughs> Yeah. Like, Half-hearted is right. It's, it's not an autobiography. He's the dead son, not the living one. No, right. That ain't that ain't right. That ain't right. So, you mentioned what might be a possible sort of beginning point, inciting incident to the journey of the play. But I want to take us to the other end of that plot and ask just a, a, a question that I, I admit that I am just sort of confused about, which is what happens in this play? Where does this play go? Is there really a climax? At the end of the play, are the characters really changed irrevocably in some way? That's a great question. Um, and, and it gets like straight into the weeds, I feel like, because I mean, the end of this play is ultimately uh, heartbreaking. Um, the, the, the last image of this play, there's no, the, the main issue of the family, which is that Mary is tragically addicted to. And I think I use tragically in the appropriate way. Um, Mary is is addicted to morphine. Uh to the point that she is is not present to her family anymore. And she's kind of wandering around the house almost like a ghost for the end of the play. Yeah, she's the three... described as a ghost several times by the other characters in mm -hmm. one of the great uh, quips of the play. There's so many. James says, oh, you know, up, up, to the, up to the upstairs to take another shot in the arm. You'll be like a mad ghost in a few mm -hmm. hours. Yep, the three guys in the play are are nearly comatose from the level of whiskey that they've drank. <laughs> nearly, I believe two of the three of them are comatose by the yep. end of the play. <laughs> <laughs> and they are kind of gathered around the table just kind of in shock and awe watching this happen in front of them. Um so so yeah, you leave the play kind of hopeless a little bit. I think I think I would argue though that the climax comes around the relationship of the two brothers. And I think what journey we do go on in this play seems to be centered around them because there is one confession in this play that seems to move the state of relationship 
uh, into something new. Throughout this play, anytime someone brings up something of the past, people people say something to the effect of, not this again, or don't start this again. Why are you bringing this up again? Would you let it rest already? Over and over and over again. But the to, there is one point where the level of inhibitions gets so low for Jamie that he confesses something to Edmund. He confesses uh, something about himself and his relationship with Edmund that I believe might have some bearing on Edmund's life, provided Edmund can remember the evening. Um, and and that's and that's that. So throughout the whole play, Tyrone and I think primarily just Tyrone accuses Jamie of being uh, kind of a, a ne'er do well or a uh, kind of a bum who just wants his money. He Jamie has since kind of taken up the family business in a way. He's gone off to Broadway to try to be an actor, but he isn't working hard enough in Tyrone's view of it. He's kind of just uh, there for the glory of Broadway and not really to do any hard work. And he accuses Ty uh, uh, Jamie of kind of leading Edmund astray throughout this and uh, leading him down a road that uh, th that it has has no good ending, kind of uh, a siren call to the pleasures of Broadway and the kind of life that Jamie leads. And over and over, both Jamie and Edmund, they're like they repeatedly call each other pals or they're, they're, they're each other's wingmen throughout the play, especially in this kind of tense family relationship. They will consistently stand up for each other um, against Tyrone, uh, some of that falls apart when it's against their mom. But what happens in this scene far into the end of the play is uh, Jamie confesses that he does lead Edmund astray, that he occasionally uh, is so jealous of him or so uh, uh, broken up about his own lack of successes that he purposely leads him on this siren call towards these habits that are not ideal. So, um, so this is what Jamie says. They're they're very drunk now. Edmund is about to go away to a sanatorium to get cured or at least treated for consumption. They're so drunk that Jamie basically says, listen, I got to tell you this because you're going away and I may never see you again. And even if I do, I might not be drunk enough to be willing to tell you this. <laughs> and he says... Uh, Listen, I did it on purpose, and the it is leading you astray. I've been a bad influence. I did it on purpose to make a bum of you. A part of me did, a big part. The part that's been dead so long that hates life. My putting you wise so you'd learn from my mistakes? Believe that myself at times, but it's a fake. Made my mistakes look good. Made my getting drunk look romantic. Made whores fascinating vampires instead of poor, stupid, diseased slobs they really are. Yikes. Made fun of work as a sucker's game. Never wanted you to succeed and made me look worse by comparison. Wanted you to fail. Always jealous of you. Mama's baby, papa's pet. Yep. And and Edmund denies it over and over, but Jamie like really brings it home that that this is that that he's bad for him in some way. He also asks for forgiveness in that. He asks that he remember that he did this so that maybe some grace can be given him. But I think this is the one confession in this play that within the scope of the day that we experience of them might have some bearing, some movement for these characters out of one place into someplace new. And as you said, Tyrone, the father, has been saying over and over through the whole story and really even mary has to some degree said listen you got to be careful of jamie he's leading you in a direction that is only destructive you can't listen to him he's a bad influence blah 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 blah. so once jamie has passed out basically from drunkenness tyrone comes in and says i heard the last part of his talk it's what i've warned you i hope you'll heed the warning now now it comes from his own mouth mm-hmm 
Yeah, so I, I think that's my argument for the climax of the play. We have a lengthy denouement still <laughs> from that point, and a lot of bad stuff happens still. But I think the the brother relationship is 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 what I would track if I were to try to make this play not just a poetic journey into night, um, and instead make it a <laughs> which it might be that <laughs> which it might be that, but instead make it a traditionally structured plot play. Then that's probably where I would where I would focus on. And and certainly that is one of the places in which the characters from morning to late in the evening have something happen to them that is a substantive journey worth watching. These brothers go on this course of things happening to them that can no longer be changed because of Edmund getting sick and getting diagnosed with his illness and needing to go away. That is causing their relationship now to split different paths. They finally come together after having these different paths. Edmund's living as a sailor. Jamie's making it as a drunken bum on Broadway. They finally come together to live in this summer home for a while. Their relationship is so close. But because of the events of this day, mother going back to her addiction, Edmund's diagnosis, They've had this conversation that they would not otherwise have had. So I think mm-hmm. you're right about that. What's interesting about it is that it does not much involve the two most uh, memorable characters of the script, I feel like, uh, Tyrone and Mary. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they kind of serve as uh, as uh, inciting incidents for them along the way. Like, they draw them to that point. Certainly, they would not have reached uh, the level... This play uses alcohol as a way to pull inhibitions away, and they would have never reached that point had not Tyrone brought out the good stuff, basically, (laughs) (laughs) and encouraged everyone that he is in contact with, except for Mary, to drink with him. And it's it's an interesting story then if we take this worldview that the the primary journey of the play is the journey of the brothers i finding some way to or or attempting some way to escape this dark haunting cheap summer home that their family has lived in through their relationship that all crumbling to bits at the end that's an interesting journey to be on with such strong you know, quote unquote side characters then. In in that version of the journey, James, Tyrone, and Mary are just sort of relegated to the place of, as you say, being uh, plot obstacles, inciting incidents, things that happen to the brothers to put more and more pressure on their relationship. But they're such strong image-bearing characters. In fact, a lot of the middle of the play is almost only about Tyrone and Mary. Mm-hmm. That's why I think it's 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 it would be a hard argument to make to try to fit this into a plot based uh, a movement based piece because I think what this is is kind of just getting to know some characters. <laughs> it seems like and and understanding where they come from. I agree that the middle of the play is mostly about Mary and and Mary's journey. We get we get a bunch of scenes and we get multiple perspective scenes around Mary. Both both uh, she with people talking to people and us making our own conclusions based on her behavior, what's happening to her. But then when she's out of the room, people talk about her. And then when everyone else, the rest of the family is out of the room, we have a substantive scene between her and Kathleen in which she gets to talk about herself without the uh, limiting perspective of the males of her family. 
Right, and actually it even goes one further than that because even when Mary's alone on stage without yeah. Kathleen, she has pretty substantive scenes just within herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of times once all the men have left for their various daily tasks or out for the evening of carousing, she'll go, she'll sort of argue with herself back and forth. I want them here. I don't want them here. No, you're stupid. Don't, don't take it. Oh, you haven't taken enough. Ah, da, 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 da. And so she has a really full, rich internal life that we don't get much from the rest of the characters. In fact, I, I'm not sure if any of the other characters are really much alone on stage other than Tyrone, who has some time alone on stage, but it's there's not a lot of dialogue. His yeah. is mostly action and image of the this sort of poor, broken old man left alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I agree that, that that aspect, I mean, it's it's... We get the sense in this play that O'Neill studied Shakespeare quite a lot. He studied lots of people quite a lot. He sa- he sat, uh, you know, O'Neill in terms of time was around huge philosophical movements throughout his life, but grew up studying Shakespeare with his dad. So so this there are parts of this play that you can picture straight out of a Shakespeare play. Soliloquies of people on stage by themselves, stark images of people kind of crumpling under the weight of what they have to bear with. And that is certainly true of Mary. It's certainly true of Tyrone in the middle of the play. Right. And of course, the Shakespearean imagery is throughout. They quote Shakespeare with incredible knowledge throughout. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jamie, I believe, makes the connection between uh, Ophelia in her madness from Hamlet and Mary's drug-addled madness in this play. Yeah, that's one of the, that's the scenes where Jamie gets hit and there are two are some of my favorite, (laughs) some of my favorite uh, actions, necessary actions in this play, because over and over these people say things that only family can say to each other and still walk out with some semblance of uh, normalcy about their relationships. They just harangue each other. But twice Jamie crosses a line and both times Edmund's out of, out of, uh, almost uncontrolled and and necessary action strikes him and Jamie's response is is not what we typically would think from you know elder brother getting struck by younger brother Jamie's response is consistently yeah, I deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think both times he says I had that coming kid. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One of the things that I think helps us follow something that happens and changes and morphs throughout the story throughout just a one short 12 hour period basically 20 uh, 18 hour period maybe is obviously O'Neill's stage directions are just incredible and not even just the sense that there were a lot of stage directions written at this point in time but reading the script is mostly reading stage directions, not that that occupies the most pace on the stage, but that most of the real substance, I feel like, is in the stage yeah. directions as opposed to the lines. And so you you think, well, when I see the play, what you're actually experiencing is the actions, the underlying emotional journeys that the character's on that O'Neill has written for the reader in stage direction form, and then actors are forced to carry out. Here's an example of a stage direction that acts as its own mini climactic moment, changing moment throughout the script. 
Tyrone is uh, very drunk. Edmund's very drunk. It's near the end of the play. Edmund has come in from walking on the beach and he's turned on all the lights. Tyrone is a, a notorious cheapskate, doesn't want the electricity on. So he's yelling at Edmund to put the light out. So he yells, you obey me and put that light out or as big as you are, I'll give you a thrashing that'll teach you stage direction. Suddenly, he remembers Edmund's illness and instantly becomes guilty and shamefaced. Lion continues, forgive me, lad, I forgot. You shouldn't goad me into losing my temper. There are, throughout the script, so many lines that function exactly the same way, where characters get really upset and then they realize that they have to control themselves or something changes externally or internally that causes the same line to continue in a very different direction to force them to backtrack to force them to change tones change directions it's a very i don't know internally these lines have so much coaching from o'neill about where the characters are coming from and heading towards that that those mini journeys of lines are almost part of the story themselves i agree agree the the mastery of the playwright as directed in in what he's hoping for from the actors in this script is 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 uh, both both uh, is is unparalleled and i mean that both in kind of the 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 cool way but also in the mechanical way of the playwright never s- produced this play he didn't have a stage manager write these directions down. This was a personal project of his that he gave to his wife that was locked away for three years after his death and then was pro- was published after his death. So what we have in this play is actually more, the stage directions are more director's notes or storyteller's notes that walk us through what he's expecting the actors to do in this. And, and, and it, and it pays off in, in ways that are unlike other stage directions when you read it and kind of go, yeah, well that that's cool, but I'm going to have my actor do whatever the actor is, is trying to do. But in faithful recreation of these, uh, of these stage directions, you get incredibly poignant images. I, the foreword of the, the play that I have has a review by Harold uh, someone. Harold Bloom. Bloom. Thank you, Harold Bloom. And uh, he talks about how, you know, years afterwards, he reapproached the script. And as he was reapproaching the script, he said, I don't remember too much of the exact lines of the play, but because when I saw it, I, they recreated these stage directions, the thing that sticks out in my mind that I will read again when I come to this play is the image of this ghostly woman walking through and three alcoholics dedicated to drinking stopping their drink to listen to the ravings of her. Yeah, the the written actions of the play are the, I think, are the memorable parts. The, yeah. I mean, even think just at the image level, long day's journey into night. Who, who has any, ex- experienced this script, who will ever forget the journey of watching this family devolve as the fog and the night comes on? Mm-hmm. Is it a little on the nose? Yes. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I think everybody who's studies drama has a sense of where Eugene O'Neill's failings come to bear. There are some. He's a little bit on the nose at times. He's a little bit depressing at times. The journeys aren't always so substantial as you might find in other scripts. But what he does that I'm not sure is really matched very well is these 
poignant action images that exist following the journey of a day as people follow a descent into madness. The way that Mary uses her hands and is always fixing her hair. As, as uh, Harold Bloom said, the ghostly woman walking through. Here's an example of a stage direction that is the moment. It is the moment. The lines do not matter. Early in the play, um, uh, Edmund and Jamie are coming in from a day of work. Mary has just taken her first dose of the drugs that she's been off for so long, and now she's back on. She's she's fallen off the wagon. And so uh, Mary says, oh, you mustn't cough like that, Edmund. It's bad for your throat. You don't want to get a sore throat on top of your cold. Stage direction. She kisses him. He stops coughing and gives her a quick apprehensive glance, but if his suspicions are aroused, her tenderness makes him renounce them, and he believes what he wants to believe for a moment. On the other hand, Jamie knows after one probing look at her that his suspicions are justified. His eyes fall to the floor. His face sets in an expression of embittered, defensive cynicism. Mary goes on, half sitting on the arm of Edmund's chair, her eyes around him, her face is above him and behind his, and he cannot look into her eyes. I mean, the react, the internal action of the two men seeing their mother addicted again and their separate reactions, their separate internal battles, that's the moment. Who cares what Mary's saying at that point? The right. point is the men seeing this happen in front of them. And and then to see Mary try to fix it, because because throughout throughout the script as well, Mary over and over has the direction of she knows something's wrong and is nervous about it and uh, and tries to do something about it. And then the, the lines reflect it. Right. Like, is something wrong with my hair? Is my hair falling down? What are you looking at? Why are you always looking at me in, in that scene in particular? Then she moves to she sees that Jamie sees and then tries to address it still and we see we see the denial wall beginning to be built early on in this scene but all of these stage directions are so compelling that i in no other script i think i'm gonna say this and it might be hyperbole but i'm gonna believe it for now in no other script can i so clearly visualize the conversations as this script yeah it, i feel like it's novel like I mean, not yeah. only do we just get lines that then if you're reading a script, often you have to read into a line how it would be said, how a character is feeling, what the subtext is as they say these words. Yunil doesn't leave that for you. Right. He tells you this is how they're feeling. This is what they're trying to achieve in the same way that a novel would. There's not much left to imagine. You know, there's not much life um, – well, then that's not true, of course. <laughs> Seeing the play is a totally different experience from reading it. I'm not saying right. that there's not life when it's given its feet. But what I am saying is that the action, the stage direction, the internal battles matter in this play especially so much more than the word, than the lines and the, you know, the most basic level plot. Yeah, the subtext is is everything about this play, and the, and I mean the the critique of people that Eugene O'Neill over overly uh, demands things of his of his cast is a valid critique. Um, I think, however, what we're seeing, what we are presented with, at least in the reading of this play as it was written before it was given to a production company to produce is a mastery of subtext and and you know without the without the playwright in the room to guide you to that subtext he wrote this with with all of it there and we get to benefit from it even in the reading of it so one of the criticisms of the play is why in the world 
would you want to spend three hours with this family? <laughs> They're the most nasty, depressing, accusing, self-aggrandizing, depressed, alcoholic, addicted, <laughs> cheapskate. I mean, what in the world is the what is the worth of this group of people in spending so much time <laughs> to them? Why is this play not just a bunch of people shouting at each other and getting really drunk over the course of in my script 160 pages? <laughs> now that was a rant. I'm not saying that's what I think. I was I was play acting as uh, someone who might criticize this play, and there are many. Right. <laughs> I mean, gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best here, but I, functionally, a lot of that is true. Like, you gotta, <laughs> I mean, you, I, I I'm not gonna be able to talk someone away from the fact that yes, people like use substances and abuse substances to the point that it's hard to watch in this play and that they are, you know, angry at each other a lot throughout this play. I think, though, I, I think that there's truths that end up coming out and maybe, you know, it's a maybe maybe this this play deserves to be consumed by someone of a type. But like I for people who have strenuous relationships with family, this sort of stuff, it, it's a play that helps people be seen. I feel like in some ways now the the method by which people are seen especially in our modern state, is not necessarily to sit for three hours and watch a play and slowly let it unfold. But nonetheless, this was a shared story, I think, for a lot of people in Eugene O'Neill's generation. And, and this was the primary way that media was consumed at that point, that story was consumed at that point. So when, especially when this play was written, this I imagine that this was a powerful uh, experience for people who had these experiences growing up of... of you know, maybe your father wasn't an actor that then moved to, you know, trying to make it big in real estate and invest well in something that he didn't fully understand. But there are other versions of that story that I think a lot of people can emulate with. People, uh, you know, the, the the level of addiction that an older brother goes to and, and the grappling with that as a younger brother, surely that's a theme for many, many people. So... So I think that, that the, the function of this play is to, you know, acknowledge that whatever this this kind of in a in a pre-disillusion of capitalist moment a little bit because because of Eugene O'Neill's time it's it's acknowledging the disillusionment of a lot of this hope that Tyrone was trying to build that he wouldn't die in a poorhouse that is he, he thinks he has very grand views of building something for his family but we see that that all that <laughs> they all harbor uh grudges against him for that nonetheless yeah, so there's some value, I think you're saying, in the idea that we don't just have to spend time or spend our artistic efforts portraying good people. That right. there are suffering, uh, upset, unhappy families, and they have stories that are engaging no matter how uplifting the story is. Yeah, I don't think I I I don't often I I maybe I'm often alone in this argument, but I don't think the primary purpose of theater is to entertain and uplift. I think so. 
I think the primary purpose of theater a lot of times, yes, it's good for those things. Like you want to go and have a good time at theater, but it's also to instruct. Theater is also to teach us something about something. And, and whether or not it's it's your perspective doesn't really matter. It's I, I think this is someone's perspective. It's certainly the playwright's perspective. So you're learning something about a new perspective, even if you're, I agree, three hours is a long time to sit with something that isn't your perspective. But still, you're, you're engaging with something uh, that someone believes believes is true. And and whether or not you agree it's true or whether or not you feel uh, edified at the end of it, hopefully you'll have some empathy for that view at the end of it. And I also don't think that Eugene O'Neill has celebrated the darkness of this family. I think that there's a difference in stories where the pain and suffering and just bad, bad decision making and complaining and all the things I said before. I don't need to do the list again. I don't. I think there's a difference between <laughs> stories that highlight that as a potentially powerful, interesting, great option for how to live, and stories in which people make bad things ha- when when bad things happen and there's suffering in the world, and we all share the experience of grief. I mean, what is the end? of this play but grief how i mm-hmm. mean there there is almost no experience at the end of this play besides grieving heart sickness and yes that's not a great experience to walk out of the theater and go get drinks <laughs> with your friends after seeing a great show right it, that's not how this play ends it yeah. ends in this shared heartbreak at what the Tyrone family is going to continue down, partially because of Mary's addiction. And a lot of the men place so much blame on Mary's addiction as the source of their heartbreak. But one of the other things the play does is level some pretty serious accusations at the men, at forcing them to look internally. And even if they end up not doing it, the audience gets to see that they ought to look internally uh-huh. from where some of their heart sickness and pain and suffering has come from. Yeah, it's an interesting journey along uh, within the play because initially all of these um, uh, critiques by other people to examine the other comes from the person that it, that it, it will be ineffectual for them to come from. <laughs> so Mary uh, levels claims towards uh, uh, towards Ed- Edmund, for instance. I'll use this as an example. She she says she in some of her moments will uh, kind of reveal that uh, I'll go with Tyrone instead. She'll reveal that uh, Tyrone uh, made her leave both the her 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 both Jamie and both the now deceased child Eugene at home to go with him on tour. She blames Tyrone for this because she says that, um, that Tyrone needed was was jealous of her sons and wanted her attention. And as a result, Jamie got into Eugene's room and gave him measles and Eugene died. Um, so that comes from Mary to Tyrone, who is his he's not able to receive it from her because he can only see the 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 addiction talking. But eventually throughout the play, Edmund brings it up uh, to Tyrone. And we can see that some of some of, when it when it when some of these critiques are brought by other people, then we see the uh, the receptiveness to it, maybe not uh, open up, but definitely change. 
And the men definitely look internally to some degree at the end. We've already mentioned Jamie's large confession about how he, he, he's come to realize that he truly has been trying to sabotage Edmund. Even Tyrone, the old cheapskate, at one point is forced to say, well, maybe the way that I grew up did negatively impact my ability to spend money effectively. So those kinds of interpersonal glancing inward, those kinds of changes do occur. The other thing that I think the play sets up is this idea that Mary's, um, I mean, it's an addiction, but in a, in a literary metaphysical sense, her desire to escape the present life and exist in this sort of higher dreamlike living in the past state due to chemicals, that that thing, which she is so blamed and so attacked for throughout the whole of the story, at one point, I think Tyrone says, why couldn't you have just been strong enough not to? I mean, good grief. Right. But- that thing that she is so maligned for, I think is the thing, the very thing that we see all three of the men escape to throughout the show. Yes, Mary falls deeper and deeper into this morphine dreamlike state, and that's part of the long day's journey into night. But the men also, in a very obvious relationship, go grit more and more chemically inhibited through their alcohol, but they also start to live in this dreamlike world of talking and living in the past, right? What does Jay James and Edmund and Jamie say about Mary when she's on the drugs, she only lives in the past. She doesn't live with us here. But then when all of them are drunk and yammering at midnight, what do they do? They live entirely in the past. They talk only about mistakes that they used to make. Or glories that they used to make yes. as well. In 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 many of the the, the last the last scene is is a set of monologues uh kind of mixed in with some back and forth uh combative dialogue. But each of the the characters get these long monologues at the end, and they're talking about yes, they're talking about failings, they're also talking about successes. Tyrone uh wishes that he thinks that even if he could ends up in a poorhouse at the end, he might have been happy uh if he had had a successful career as an actor or had had completed his dreams as an actor. Edmund talks about how uh his he goes on he he does this monologue about how he's on a ship and he has all these grand views of the world he's he's a reader he likes philosophy he likes nietzsche um and and he said it was my great mistake being born a man i would have been much more successful as a seagull or a fish um he, he'd rather have this kind of existence outside of existence uh, I, I love that you said that and I'm, I'm just gonna jump in and interrupt you there because that's exactly where i want to go with this this is i'm gonna read you a line it's, an, it's a line about edmund uh, it's not about edmund edmund says it and he He's describing where he went after the after dinner scene about 6.30. Edmund leaves because he's so upset with his mother and his father, etc. And he goes to walk on the beach. So when he comes back later, he describes to James Tyrone um, where he was, why he was walking on the beach. Listen to what he says and he, try to hear the comparisons between what he says about his walk on the beach and how they've described Mary when she's on her morphine. I think it's incredible. Listen to this. Edmund says, the fog was where I wanted to be. Halfway down the path, you can't see this house. You'd never know it was here or any of the other places down the avenue. I couldn't see but a few feet ahead. I didn't meet a soul. Everything looked and sounded unreal. Nothing was what it is. That's what I wanted. 
to be alone with myself in another world where truth is untrue and life can hide from itself. Out beyond the harbor where the road runs along the beach, I even lost the feeling of being on land. The fog and the sea seemed part of each other. It was like walking on the bottom of the sea, as if I had drowned long ago, as if I was a ghost belonging to the fog and the fog was the ghost of the sea. It felt damned peaceful to be nothing more than a ghost within a ghost. Yeah, like that, that, that stripping away of, of like presence and allowing to just to float. For a group of men that gets so darned upset with Mary because her <laughs> morphine addiction makes her a ghost, Edmund just gave us a defense of the experience that Mary wants to have when she gets, when she, when she takes the morphine. Now he doesn't know he's doing that. That may be a reflection the men don't ever achieve. Yeah. But he just described for us the reasons why Mary might want to take morphine. Their lives are so miserable that the escape into being a ghost within a ghost is is a pleasant desire for them. <laughs> yeah, one that they pursue with different tactics, certainly, but all of them are are shooting for it, and all of them have a paradoxical relationship with them. I mean, we we're talking about how how uh, Edmund is completely blind to it, um, the the fact that he's 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 saying it and 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 wanting to be a part of that. Uh, stripping of senses away from his family pr problems, but Mary comes out and just says it to herself. I mean, talking to two different versions of herself almost, she says, I, I, you know, it's good that they're gone. I'm glad to be alone. They're always so boorish and I can't get a thought in edgewise. But then the next sentence, she's like, oh, but I'm so lonely when they're not here. I wish that they would come home. So each of these, each of the, I think all of these characters are de dealing with this, this, uh, this paradoxical relationship with the, the bearing up versus the just wanting to be alone from this family. Right. And, and because Mary's addiction is so abnormal and so obvious, it becomes a way to put a thing to point at and blame. But later in the same scene, Edmonds is describing his mother's addiction. She, he says, the hardest thing to take is the blank wall she builds around herself, or it's more like a bank of fog in which she hides and loses herself deliberately. That's the hell of it. I mean, dude, like five <laughs> yeah. pages ago, you just told us how badly you want to disappear into a bank of fog. And then as if you've forgotten, you say, how dare mother want to escape into a bank of fog? Right. <laughs> yeah, there's like an, an implied... Uh an implied need for them to be served by her or why, why can't she just, you know, continue to sacrifice for me in the face of them wanting exactly the same things. And that's why the powerful image that is the end of the play, these three men lowering their glasses of whiskey, seeing the mad ghost mother stumble through, that's part of what lends the power to the scene. It's not just that it's three normal dudes watching this suffering woman. It's that it's this suffering family. And in Mary, you almost hope the men start to see a reflection of themselves. It's, it's hard to imagine, especially in 1912, a very positive future for Mary. There's no addiction treatment. People just tell her she needs to try to stop or they'll send her to a sanatorium. And of course, that doesn't work. 
So it's hard to imagine where her addiction can lead her in a positive direction. But the men, you might hope, have this chance to look and see that they are in danger of living in the same way, right? They're in a drunken stupor talking about the past, just like the mad ghost stumbling through their living room. The ghost is them in some ways. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, that that uh, good job bringing something hopeful out of it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the hope that I have for them. I'm right. not saying I think it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that the that, that there's so much in this play that has to do with the I, I think shockingly for the time he's unique. O'Neill is uh showing us the the false standard by which we hold the two different genders in this play and and how the how all the men consistently blame Mary for things and never absorb the uh the blame for for I, I think and what I think what we're talking about here an identical tactic for dealing with life um somehow they wind up I think I think one maybe structural difference is somehow they all wind up in community still with each other, and so that could be part of why there's some sort of dichotomy between the two. But of course, Mary's accusation is that they've left her out of that community. Yeah. Because you're right, that any hope these men have for their lives is twisted backwardsly based on their relationships with each other. I, I don't see a world in which these men can separate and hope to improve their lot in life. Maybe I'm backwards on that. But I, I, I agree with you. I think the community of drunken men together is part of, is part of any chance at a hopeful view of the end of the story. But Mary mm-hmm. is separate from them, both because of her addiction, because of her costuming, the white ghost, and this, because she's a woman. But also, she says, because these men leave her alone. And you know what? I'm on her side. Yeah. <laughs> and and I mean it it extends to the the way that life has uh been decided for them by Tyrone has left her in this place where they're in this these people that they don't really like and don't really like them. Uh throughout the play they talk about their community in derogatory fashion. Nobody no, no one in the family likes anyone in the community. And and so yeah, she is she is extremely alone and both her family and the society around them uh, look down on her particular style of addiction. Now, now whether whether or not you want to uh, argue the the merits of that, it's the fact of the time. People did not look down on people getting blackout drunk all the time in the same way that apparently everyone is very ashamed of the fact that she is taking morphine. Right, so, and, and she actually highlights that distinction a couple of times. She a number of in a number of different points, she says something to the effect of, "Well, the Met, they're all going to bar rooms to hang out with their friends, and they're leaving me here alone." Right, so there's this sense in which they can go be part of a community of escapism and addiction, and she's a left in her escapism and addiction alone in this cheaply built, cheaply furnished house. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I I I wonder what I wonder what the the next step is as well. You know, you think about we, we've talked about plays after a play before. I don't know. There's 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 not a lot to go off of this one, right? Like Edmund's going to go to a sanatorium to try to get cured of his tuberculosis, and uh, what happens to this family unit as he's gone? As they can't visit him there and are not a part of his life for a time. Who knows what happens after this? It's hard to imagine a future where something gets tied up at the end. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know what happens to Edmund after this. The, the guys accuse Tyrone a number of times of being so cheap that even medical care is dealt with cheaply. That might be, they say, part of the reason why Mary is addicted is that he was too cheap to get her treated early and now she's had a lifelong addiction that it's, that it's hard to break. He has what I think are some actually good comebacks to that. Um, but set those aside for now and just, just hold the accusation, which is that he dealt cheaply with her in that way and that all along the way, he's provided this paltry medical care. They accuse the doctor that he likes to go to of being a cheapskate. They accuse the sanatorium that he wants to send Edmund to to be this kind of cheap state sanatorium that's not really going to get him held. In fact, in a really biting accusation, Jamie says that because Tyrone doesn't think Edmund will survive anyway, he doesn't want to spend any money on his care. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a knife in the back accusation. But yeah. but setting all that aside, it comes down to this moment where Edmund says, I'm not going to the cheap sanatorium. And, and Tyrone says, well, of course you can go anywhere you want. And then he suggests this place that still sounds like a piece of crap sanatorium to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he, he makes this case that these millionaires underwrite the sanatorium so people can go cheaply, but they get 10 times the care. And it's like, do, right. do they? Is that, is, or is this just another, <laughs> you know, piece of crappy property that somebody's passed off on you and you're going to send your son somewhere where he's not going to get the care he needs and he's going to die? Right, right. <laughs> I, I think in my mind I was I was being a little too meta because I think you're right. Structurally within the play, that's all up in question still. Like, you, especially because at the end of this night, who knows what is remembered from these conversations? Um but I, I, in my mind, my meta mind is like, well, yeah, sure. But uh, I mean, Edmund's Eugene O'Neill, so he he makes it and he, <laughs> he goes off and writes plays about his survives. family. Of course, he survives. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you're right. Structurally within the play, we don't we don't. Uh, there's all sorts of question marks at the end of at the end of that that final act. We don't know how this family is ever going to even live past you know the next couple months with each other. And that's why the fact that Edmund has consumption is so crucial. We've mentioned it a number of times that this is what makes today different. This is what makes this the day that we watch this story. It's not just that this is the day Mary falls off the wagon after having been healthy, although that's part of it. But why does she do that? Because she's so worried about Edmund being sick with consumption. The fact that Edmund is sick with consumption, has been diagnosed with consumption, is going away, is what causes these men to have these conversations that bring their relationships to a boiling point. I mean, Edmund being sick is the crucial element of the play that drives almost everything else. Yeah, yeah. Without Edmund being sick, without Edmund being, you know, if, if Edmund was just home on, on you know, leave from being a sailor, this play would be completely different. It would probably be all wilderness if, if that was the case. Except um, with a dopine or a morphine addicted mother. Right, right. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that that with with without that crucial inciting incident that makes that that cues up. I don't know if you'll be dead or if I ever see you again. These conversations would not happen. And that might be somewhere to look in the play for this deeper connection to why am I spending so much time with these terrible characters is 
it's a terrible <laughs> thing to experience for all these people. And so what kinds of conversations do they have in the midst of horrible experiences? And then you look back at yourself and you say, well, what if I'm in the midst of terrible experiences, which I think everybody is at some point in their lives, what kinds of conversations am I going to want to have? Am I going to do it the way that the Tyrones do it in the accusing, hateful, bitter, complaining way that they do it? Or is there a better path? It might right. be in a you know a, a a teaching lesson by negative example. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Am I going to have these conversations <laughs> heavily chemically induced, or is there a different way? Is there a different <laughs> way forward? <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today to talk about this script. <laughs> Ending on that note, <laughs> what a what a happy place to go. Hey, yep. Look, a long day's journey into night, considered by a lot of people to be one of the finest. American dramas that exists. And if you haven't read it or seen it, you ought to, just for your own edification, your own participation in an Amer- a uniquely American uh, uh, view of drama. Eugene O'Neill, as the foreword to the script that Jackson and I have been reading mentions, there really didn't exist an American drama before Eugene O'Neill. This is where so many of those American dramas that we love, uh, proof that we talked about last week, owes something to a play like this. Yeah, yeah, it, I I could not highly recommend reading reading it more. Uh, there's there's tons of stuff in here that we didn't get to in here as well. This a lot of this play is poetry. A lot of this play is getting in touch with you know people who feel that life is not going well for them. So if that's a theme for you, you're gonna find your people in this play. So <laughs> I'd check it out definitely. And when you do, please uh, continue the conversation with us. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at No Script Podcast. Podcast, and we'd love to keep having a conversation with you about Eugene O'Neill's script, Long Day's Journey in Tonight. If you don't like social media, we're even on email for you, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us on up on any of those sites and we'd love to keep talking about this play with you. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, you can uh, share them with your friends. That would be really, really awesome. You can share <laughs> it on social media. You can tell people about it. Any of that would be great. For those of people that are looking for the podcast, we're on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. This is the second to last episode of the season. We have uh, this episode that you just listened to, one more, and then we are done with season three. We will take a little bit of a break, and we will be back in January with season four. Season four. Man. It's really exciting. Look forward to some new things in season four. Some new yeah. things that you'll be seeing come your way, as well as some old things, some traditions that we've been holding that will continue into the season. So we will see you in season four in January, but you do have one more season three episode to look forward to next week. Yeah, so have no fear. We'll see you again next week when we're talking about another play. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.